So we're going to be continuing our series in Ruth, and um, Ruth is really just an encouraging book for us to go through. And, you know, we're going to pick up right where we left off. And, you know, today we're going to be seeing kind of similar themes from last week. But, you know, I'm really excited to just go through this. Um, There's a lot to go over, so we're just going to go straight into the text. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn them to Ruth chapter 2. We're actually going to be reading through the entire chapter, uh, 23 verses. Um, Ruth chapter 2, and um, I'll read for us. This is the reading of God's word, and it says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of the grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she, uh, Ruth, she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Verse 7, she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. This is verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and Uh, to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And verse 10, this is Ruth's response. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings You have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not approach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Verse 17, So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ipa of barley. Verse 18, And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law Naomi, saw what she had gleaned, she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be 
the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Verse 20, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. Verse 23, so she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So we just read a huge chunk of scripture, right? Um, I'm going to try to do my best to break this down for us. And one thing that I've mentioned last week is to really appreciate and to really see what's going on in this passage, we need to understand the context. We need to understand um, what is going on in this weird time. This, this is kind of weird. If, we, if we're reading this for face value, we're just like, okay, what the heck is going on, right? What is gleaning? What is a reaper? Like, what, what's, what's all this like? What's going on in this narrative? So the first question that we have to ask to really unlock this passage and to kind of have um, the right eyes to see what's going on is this. What is gleaning? Okay? So what is gleaning? And if you don't know what gleaning is, gleaning is a system of welfare for Israel. Okay? So um, back in, like, the Old Testament, right? Um, and, 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 you know, stay with me. I know this is a lot of, like, history stuff, but this is kind of important for us to see. Um, there's this law in Israel that states that if you own land, right, if, if you're a landowner, you have to leave a portion of your grain fields untouched for the poor and the foreigner. Okay? So, once again, there's this law in Israel that states that if you own land, and, you know, back then, people who owned land also owned farmland as well, um, they have to leave a portion of it untouched so that people who are poor, people who are aliens or foreigners can come and harvest, right? So it's kind of like if you have a bunch of, like, fruit trees in your backyard, right, you would have to leave it untouched for um, someone who's poor to randomly come into your backyard and to harvest it so that they can eat it for themselves. Um, super random. This is not in my script, but um, yesterday I was just like working on stuff at my house, and literally, like my Indian neighbor came with a like a gardening tool into my backyard, and I'm like, "What the heck is going on?" And he started to like picking fruit, and I was texting the house owner. I was like, "Wait, is this normal?" And he was like, "Yeah, this is normal." So anyway, kind of like tangent, right? But this kind of reminded me of that. So that's what gleaning is, okay? All right. So um, many countries, we have systems of welfare, right? Um, for the United States, we have food stamps. Um, and I don't think many of us have the experience of using food stamps. Um, but Israel, they didn't have food stamps, but they had this system called gleaning, okay? So not a lot of people kept this rule, especially during this time, right? Um, last week I mentioned this was the time of the judges, and it was a very, very dark spiritual time for Israel. No one kept the law. No one cared about the law. No one cared about God. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So it was doubly worse for Naomi and Ruth to live in this culture, especially as widows losing their husbands, and to try to survive on their own and picking up food for themselves. So... If that's what gleaning is, why did God implement this rule? Like, why do we have this? Like, why are we reading this in Ruth chapter 2? 
you know, why am I making like historical references? And this is really the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to not restrict God's people, right? The purpose of the law is to reveal who God is. Because a lot of times I feel like we look at um, like the laws and like Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and we're just like, God is so weird. Why is he so anal about all these different sacrifices and taxes and rules and these laws? And the main reason why is not because you know, God wants to be strict. God wants to micromanage his people. But the main reason why God implements all these different laws that we see all throughout the Old Testament is to show them, this is how you become like me. I am revealing myself, Yahweh, to you. And for you to know me is for you to know what I desire for my people. So this is God's way, essentially, of teaching his people to look after the poor, right? To look after those who are marginalized. God is pretty much saying, as he's instituting this this welfare system of gleaning, look, I took care of you as my people. Israel, I took care of you uh, when you were poor, when you were foreigners in Egypt. And as I took care of you, I want you to do the same and to take care of others who are marginalized, to take care of others who are poor, to take care of those who don't have food to eat. Now, we have to understand that this system of gleaning is a very shameful practice because it's a public shame of, or it's a public display of uh, poverty. So imagine, right, you don't have that much income, right? We're in the inner city and we're buying groceries, and all you have to pay for your groceries is food stamps. So you line up at the market, you don't have cash, you don't have credit cards, you don't have a checkbook, you have these food stamps, and it's a special check for that, and you pay for groceries. Now, do you know how to distinguish a good cash register from a bad cash register? Is if someone who doesn't shame you, and someone who knows the process of accepting food stamps, Because you can imagine, if you had food stamps, if you were living under income, it's embarrassing to go through that process. And everyone behind you in line, they're waiting for their, you know, to check out with their groceries. And they see you lagging in the lineup with your food stamps. And to pay for something like that is extremely embarrassing. And likewise, for these women to glean, right, after some property that's not theirs, it's extremely embarrassing. So this is kind of what Naomi and Ruth, uh, particularly Ruth and other, other women are going through. Now, not only was it shameful for Ruth, um, we talked about last week that Ruth was extremely vulnerable and exposed. You see, not only was she a foreigner, she was not an Israelite. She's from a land that's kind of disliked by Israelites, but she was also a widow. She faced a lot of danger. So people like Ruth, they had no protection, they had no value, they had no worth, and they were commonly raped, they were commonly beaten, and mistreated. So it's really easy to take advantage of women like this. But in addition to facing danger from other harvesters, um, she faced the most danger from Boaz as a wealthy landowner with power. So I don't know if you caught this, but with Boaz, he could have done whatever he wanted to Ruth, and frankly... He could have gone away with it. But as we were reading from this chapter, we see otherwise. We see that Ruth was completely unharmed. No one laid a finger on Ruth. And not only that, but out of all the different fields that she could have gone to, for some miraculous reason, she ended up in Boaz, Boaz's field. 
And guess what Boaz did in response? Boaz treated her with so much compassion and respect. Boaz even went the extra yard to protect her, to give her refuge. Now, right from the beginning, church, I want to tell you this. Um, What is this passage teaching us? This passage is teaching us a very important lesson, and it's this. Our God is not a God of chance. Our God, the God that we worship, the God that we sing songs to, is not a God of coincidence or chance. You see, luck or coincidence has no place in God's vocabulary, right? And I'm not saying like, oh, like you're a sinner for saying, oh, good luck or what a lucky coincidence. No, but according to God's divine plan, there's no such thing as luck. God's hand in this entire story was upon Naomi and Ruth. And when it seemed like hope was lost, when they appeared to be exposed and vulnerable, they were actually at their strongest. Why? Because God was protecting them. God was the one who eventually led Ruth to Boaz's field. Now, this is kind of hard to see in our English translation, but in verse 7, Ruth makes a very, very bold request to Boaz. Do you know what she says? She pretty much says this, Boaz... You're a great man. Thank you for the leftover grain. Thank you for allowing me to glean. But I need to get more. Let me follow after your personal workers to get the grain that your workers get for you. The quality grain. Give me the good stuff, not this cheap stuff, not the leftovers. Now, do you know what that's like? Let me try to give you an example. Let's say we went to one of my favorite establishments, McDonald's, right? And you see a homeless person, and he has a sign, um, please give me food, whatever. So you feel generous, you get him a Big Mac combo, which is one of the greatest combos in the world, and you give it to him, like, hey, like, I saw your sign, I want to care for you. And the homeless man, he looks at you, and he's like, no, sorry, I don't eat that. That's not for me. But you know what? Um, there's this place in Culver City, actually. It's about like a 30, 40-minute drive. Hopefully there's no traffic called Father's Office. And there's a burger that I really like there. Do you think you can get me that instead and bring it back to me? What would your response be? You'd be like, the beep, like, get away, right? And you would just throw the food at him, right? Um, beggars cannot be choosers, and pretty much that is what Ruth is doing. For Boaz to provide gleaning is really an act of grace to begin with. You know, Boaz should have been offended because he knows the law, right? We read here that Boaz is a worthy man, and that pretty, ma- means, it pretty much means that he's well off and he has character. He's a, he's a guy of good character. So he's abiding by the rules, and she's an outsider. And if people all around me, right, especially in this dark climate, aren't honoring the welfare system, why should I? I have no incentive. And Boaz is pretty much, you know, he's right to think this. I have been more than gracious for allowing Ruth to take the leftover grain. That's an act of grace. And now you're trying to take advantage of me by asking me for my own grain. That's for me, the better quality stuff. But as we're reading in this passage, Boaz does not respond that way. This is how he responds. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. Now, why is Boaz not offended by her request? And the reason why is because this passage tells us that he has heard about Ruth and everything that she gave up for Naomi. Right? That's what 
uh, her servant or uh, Boaz's servant told um, Boaz about Ruth. Because Boaz knew that she wasn't doing it for herself. She was doing it for a different woman who lost everything, Naomi, her mother-in-law. And Boaz knew that Ruth had nothing to gain for herself by helping Naomi. And because Boaz heard this amazing story that we went over in chapter 1 last week about Ruth's kindness and her loyalty, that inspires Boaz to sacrifice for Ruth. And what we see here is that kindness and selfless acts of love are contagious. Now, um, about five years ago, there's this woman who ordered an iced coffee at the worst place ever, Starbucks. Okay, so she was at a drive-thru in this Starbucks in St. Petersburg, Florida. For some reason, at this Starbucks, she decided to be kind, and she paid for the driver behind her, right? She paid for her own drink, her iced coffee, and the driver behind her. Then that driver, feeling touched by that random act of kindness, guess what he did? He paid for the next driver, and that driver paid for the next driver, and so on and so forth. And guess how long this chain of kindness went on for? 11 hours. It's crazy, right? 11 hours. A total of 378 customers showed kindness, all inspired just by that one woman who started the chain. And at 6 p.m., the 379th customer ended the chain by ordering his uh, his or her own coffee. I don't know who it is. And um, after being asked, hey, do you want to pay for the driver behind you? He declined. Shiesty, right? Now, Naomi's kindness to Ruth inspired Ruth's kindness back to Naomi. And word of that has gone out to Boaz, and Boaz observed the kindness shown from Ruth, so he shows her kindness when it's culturally not the norm to do so. So if we look at Judges, we see that in Judges, hurt people hurt people. But in this book of Ruth, the amazing thing that we see is that people who are loved, loved people love people. Boaz is so generous. Uh, This is really what the text is trying to show us. Um, Because the law reserved the corner of the land, right, for gleaning to be used for the poor. But you see, God never stipulates what the maximum is. There's a minimum, but there's no maximum. So people always have room to go above and beyond. So Boaz has a very loose interpretation of that law. He doesn't minimize how much to give to those who are marginalized. He doesn't minimize those, uh, the, the, the crop that's reserved for the poor. But rather, he says to, to Ruth, look, my entire land, all that you want to harvest for food is at your disposal. And not only that, he also invited her to stay at his house so that she can eat, she can have shelter, she can take rest in between the gleaning. And also he provided her with water. And Boaz goes really above and beyond what was required from the law. He provided protection, right? In this chapter, he said, look, Ruth, stay in my fields. This is where you're going to be the safest because if you go to another field, um, you're probably going to be assaulted. You're probably going to be raped. It's safer for you to be here. And even to the men, his workers, he says, don't touch Ruth. Do not touch Ruth. Leave her unharmed. But in addition to providing protection, Boaz also provides a community of women, right? So he has you know, other women who is also working in the fields. And, you know, they're available to talk with and to process and to um, help really Ruth as an outsider, a foreigner, to adjust into a, a new community that she doesn't know how to live with. 
And Boaz, he says something very interesting in verse 12. All the kindness and generosity that I'm showing to you, that's not normal of this culture. It's all God. Boaz is blessing Naomi, right? The Lord repay you for what you have done. And he's really saying, may God give you greater blessings. Boaz is saying to Ruth, look, you deserve way more than what I'm giving to you. And I'm glad that you're thankful, but I want you to know something that's really important. God knows what you've been through. God is the one who led you here to my field. God is the one who allowed us to meet. God is the one showing favor to you as a foreigner, and you are in the safest place because he has brought you under his wings of refuge. So church, what does that mean for us today? It means that God is in control and he's orchestrating all the events in your life right now. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is actually active in your life, that he's not absent, that really every event that you go through on a day-to-day basis, God is behind it? Do you believe that? And since he's so active and since he's moving um, because God really is sovereign over the events of our lives, this should not cause us to be idle or to be lazy. Because knowing that God is on the move, that should actually rather encourage us to be more proactive. A high view of God's sovereignty should inspire bold acts of faith. Right? A high view of God's sovereignty, knowing that he is in control of all things, right? Um, This shouldn't make us think this. God is sovereign, so God's going to take care of it. It's not for me. Let someone else do it. But rather, it should cause us to believe God is sovereign, I should have no fear. Therefore, I'm going to be bold. I'm going to take risks. We see that God's faithfulness in the life of Ruth inspired faithfulness in Boaz's life. And hearing Ruth's boldness with Boaz should actually motivate us to be bold in our lives. And again, you know, Boaz is not supposed to fit in this context. Men in this time and society are expected to take advantage of widows and foreigners. Women, especially those who were gleaning, like Ruth, were known to be violated and exploited. Boaz is not the norm, and so it leaves us with this question. What do we see and learn about Boaz? I think it's this. When God gives, he gives big. When God gives and provides for us, he doesn't withhold back. He gives big. And not only does God give big, but God always has a desire to give. For Boaz, you know, he's extremely generous in giving to both Ruth and Naomi. And we see that really that's God's way of giving and providing and blessing to the widows in the story. But here's the thing. I think that our problem is that we think God is stingy. We think God is like that 379th customer who ended the pay for chain at Starbucks, right? God is stingy. God doesn't care for me. How has he provided in my life? And church, I need to tell you that this kind of theology is detrimental because it hurts the way that we pray. Believing the fact that God is stingy It hurts the way we anticipate great things from God. 
Why do we think God is cheap? Why do we think he's so shysty and he's withholding things from us? And the reason why I think we believe that, if I were honest with you, it's because you and I, and this is myself included, we have this tendency to forget. We forget all the answered prayers. We forget all the stuff that God has done for us. And even when we remember it, we take it for granted because it seems so small compared to all of our huge current problems in life, right? Church, if I can confess to you, I struggle with this. Like, honestly, like, I struggle with this. I fail to realize the countless of blessings that I already have because I take them for granted. And there's a lot of times where it's so easy for me, and I'm just being real with you, to throw myself a pity party and pretty much, like, say to God, like, God, like, why are you so cheap? Like, why, instead of giving the things that I'm asking for, you're giving me, like, crap I don't know how to deal with? And to be frank with you, there's a lot of times in my own personal prayer, I really say, what the hell, God? What are you doing? You're so cheap. But I fail to see in my negative attitude the many blessings that I have from God, such as, number one, family. Some of you know my dad, right? And there's millions of stories associated with my dad. But my dad is such a gift from God. You know, my dad is the one how I am able to understand the concept of grace. It came from my dad. My, my you know, my brother is a gift from God, right? My stepmom, who's an immensely godly woman, is a gift from God. And not only that, God has even provided my brother's in-laws to help me as well. So one of the best things I love about, like, my sister-in-law and her family when I visit, like, my niece is that, they always make me kimchi. And that kimchi is like the best kimchi ever. I kid you not. It's better than all these restaurants. And literally, like, I go there, and she already has, like, Tupperware uh, of, like, I don't even know the names. There's, you know, different kinds of kimchi. And, like, a bunch of these different types of kimchis, right? And she's so nice enough to teach me how to make kimchi jjigae. And I'm on a journey to make, like, really awesome kimchi jjigae, right? Stuff like that. I see grace from my, like, they're not even blood, Right? They're, they're binded to be my family through marriage. But God has provided so many people in my life. God has provided income. And it's so easy for me to be like, oh, I'm poor. Right? I need to pick up another job. But then again, I look at my life and I'm like, wait, I have so much. I have nothing to be complaining about. Why am I complaining about the smallest things and making it such a big deal when it's not? And probably, you know, one of the greatest gifts that God has given to me is you guys, community, church. And I can't tell you of the many times, and I'm looking at some of you right now, where in life group, I felt so comforted. I felt so ministered to. I can't tell you of the many times where I wanted to give up and God provided these brothers as a gift to like, carry me through my burdens. God provided this church. Outside of this church, God has provided friends who are pastors and other friends, you know, outside of this church. And I feel like, you know, God has blessed me with layers and layers of support and community. But with all these different gifts and blessings that God has blessed me with, 
I also realized that one of God's greatest gifts that he can give to all of us is this. No. No, not yet. One of the best things God can do for us is close doors and deny things. At least for the time being, because it's better for us in the moment. And I hate that. And there's many times where, like, I want to disagree with that. Because in my own life, I feel like I'm ready for the new opportunities. I'm ready for a new season. But God knows me better than I know myself. And I have to have the humility and the self-awareness to admit that maybe I'm not ready for the things that I'm asking for. And sometimes I know from God is a great gift. And it leads me to this question, am I going to trust in God's wisdom, his timing, and his knowledge, or am I going to trust in my own understanding and my idea of what's best for me? God has blessed each and every one of us in this room beyond measure. And when I look at you guys right now, um, man, I see many evidences of that in all of your lives. For instance, um, one thing that God has blessed a lot of us with, maybe all of us here, is that he's blessed us with jobs. You know, so I pray for you at least once a week, like minimal, like minimum, at least once a week. And I'm not saying this to brag, but I'm saying this because there's many of times, there's many times where I've prayed to God to provide jobs when a lot of you were in between jobs, right, when you guys were unemployed. And God has answered that. God has, another example is this, God has blessed us with not only, you know, income and jobs, but God has blessed many of us with children. God has blessed us with marriages, with engagements, right? Literally yesterday we had not only just a baby shower, but we had an engagement party, right? God has blessed us with family, God has blessed us with health. And these are the things that we take for granted, for this church specifically, God has provided us so much growth. And whenever I get discouraged in ministry, whenever I feel like I'm failing at this whole pastor thing, I look at what God is doing and I see him building the exchange church. I see Jesus caring for his bride. I see disciples being made. In meetings with life group leaders, I see the immense change that is happening in our lives and how God is redeeming us from our sins and our past and our mistakes. We need pause. Church, we need to pause, we need to stop, and we need to take time to remember how God has blessed us. If we do not believe that God is generous and caring, that he's a giver of many great gifts, it's because we've forgotten or we're not asking. And maybe we're not asking because we think God is cheap. Here's our application, um, and this is going to be a little unusual, and I'm going to leave time for this. But if you have your phones, if you have, if you're taking notes with like you know a journal or whatnot, um, open your notes section on your like your phone app, and write down one prayer request that you want to commit yourself to praying for, for the next year, and see what God does. So let's do that. Like if you have your phones, if you have anything to write on, write one prayer request. Make it specific as possible and pray for that from today, you know, August 18th to August 18th of 2020. And I'm going to do that right now. Let's do that right now.
make it specific, <coughs> make it simple, and just try your best to commit to praying for that for one year and see what God does. And if you're like thinking about it, that's fine. Continue to think about it and write it down when you're ready. But I want to say a couple of things. I'm not promising that God's going to answer every prayer request that is written down because God has his own timing. He has his own way. And to be honest with you, um, I want to be real with you guys. Maybe we're not praying for the right things or maybe we're not praying with the right heart. But God will correct our hearts. God will mold and shape our hearts. And what prayer does, it actually changes our hearts to conform to his will. So that's okay. But one thing we have to understand about asking things from God is this. God loves it when his children are persistent. God loves it when you guys are praying to him. God loves it when we ask for things. God loves it when we bring our requests to him in prayer. And we're persistent about that. He loves that. And he's inviting us to do that every single day. And of course, I'm not saying that this should be the only way we pray. This shouldn't be our main diet when it comes to praying. But I want to remind you guys, Jesus is not sarcastic when he's saying, ask, seek, knock, and it will be given to you. Jesus is not lying when he says, if an evil father gives good gifts to his children, imagine how much our Father in heaven will give to you. Do you believe that for all of us here, God loves and cares for you so much that he wants to give you all the great gifts in the world and he's just waiting for you to ask. Prayer is powerful. And I want to see what God does if we commit to praying for that one prayer for one year. As simple as it is. So write that down. Keep it in your databanks. Pray for it. You know, our missions team in Malaysia, we met one missionary family uh, we met five, but there's this one particular family that we were able to hear. Um, we listened to their stories and how they were called into missions. So, um, I mean, for security reasons, I'm not going to give you, like, their name. But <clears throat> this family, right, um, this husband was finishing up his MDiv in South Carolina. He was finishing up his MDiv in South Carolina. And the family, um, they were trying to figure out what are the next steps for missions, because they believe that God is probably calling us to Malaysia. Um, they are from Malaysia as well. So th- their kids haven't seen snow because they're from Malaysia. It doesn't snow in Malaysia, I think. Um, and they really told their they, they told their, their, their parents, we really want to see snow. It would be great for us to see snow. So on the last evening before they, they leave the states to go back to Malaysia, the wife says to the husband, hey, let's pray for snow. But not so much snow where it inconveniences others and affects our flight back. But just enough for our kids to enjoy. And that prayer will be a sign to know that God is with us as we serve in the missions field. The prayer was so specific, right? God, give us snow, but not too much snow, right? And you can just imagine what the husband is thinking like, and this is literally, they're telling me, Kenny, and Jessica this. The husband looked to the wife and says, you're stupid. It is statistically impossible for snow to come at this time of the year in South Carolina. What are you thinking? And they just, they prayed, right? And they pretty much, like, forgot about it, and they went to sleep. 
Now, guess what happens next morning? The kids wake up the parents saying, there's snow. There's snow. Right? And the parents didn't believe it at first, right? The husband, you know, he skeptically checks his hus- uh, the, the phone and the weather. And he's like, there's no snow. What are you guys talking about? You guys are crazy. But they looked outside the window, and lo and behold, it was snowing in South Carolina. Not only was it just snowing, but there's five inches of snow. So it's enough snow for these kids to enjoy and to play in. And the parents were so excited, they can't believe God has actually answered this specific prayer. And so they call their friends who are in the same city, and they're saying, dude, are you checking this out? It is snowing. And they, you know, the people that they're, they're calling, they, they respond, it's not snowing, it's like hailing. There's no snow. It's like raining. And they realize that it only snowed on their street and a couple blocks next to them for only one hour. How crazy is that? God was so gracious, and he answered this specific and difficult prayer request. And the family, their response was wonder and amazement. The husband, who was ridiculing his wife's faith, felt rebuked for his lack of faith. And this moment served to be a memorial for the family, and they believed that God is with them. This is a sign and a memorial that shows that as difficult as missionary life is, as you have no resources, as you have no community, and as you really face danger, God is with you. Going back to our story in Ruth, this is how our chapter ends. Naomi, right, the Ruth's mother-in-law, she's waiting for Ruth to come back home. And, you know, like, I don't know if you have, like, parents still calling you if you're out late, if you live at home, right? Right, like, when are you coming home? Right, I get this all the time, even though I don't live with my dad. But um, Naomi is, you know, as a loving parent, cares about her, you know, daughter-in-law coming back home because it's dangerous, because she's sickly worried about Ruth. For Naomi, she's thinking this is such a dangerous thing to go glean on a field. She's probably beaten. She probably gone sexually assaulted. But Ruth comes back healthy unharmed, untouched. She comes back happy and she comes back with a lot of food. And Naomi, after hearing what has been done to Ruth by Boaz, she attributes this all to God. God is the one responsible for this. And you know what's so interesting about Naomi's response? In chapter 1, when she is going through the death of her husband, the death of her children, when she's going through what it's like to be a widow in a foreign land, she says, all this hardship, God, is from you. This is all you. She's attributing it all to God. And yet, when all the blessings come to her, when she sees the evidence of grace and the life of Ruth, she says, this is all you, God. This is all you. Church, brothers and sisters, God is orchestrating all the events in our lives. You may not see it. You may not feel it. But surely, this text is a reminder to all of us that God is on the move. God is blessing those who bless others. God is showing kindness to those who show kindness to others. God is truly a gracious and generous giver. God has provided people in our lives to love us, to care for us, to to protect us, to support us, to be with us. And And that is not all. That's not it. 
we have to remember that we were once foreigners as well. And God has brought us into his own family. And out of all the great gifts that God has given to us, the greatest gift that he's given to us is the gift of Christ. And the character of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz points to the character and the kindness of Jesus. God is extremely generous. God wants to give. And God wants to remind us today that he is really sovereign and his hand is over every single aspect and area of our life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, We thank you for the fact that in the story of Ruth and Naomi, um, it's a strong reminder, God, that you are not only faithful, but you are extremely generous. And you give to us things that not only we ask for, but God, you give us things that we don't deserve. Help us as a church to believe, God, that you are not cheap, that you are not stingy, but out of your generous heart and your loyalty and your compassion to your people, you want to give to us. And may we never, ever forget that Jesus is the most precious gift that we have in knowing salvation and having the opportunity to be brought into new life is such a great gift, and we thank you and we praise you for that. Holy Spirit, you are the great comforter, and what I ask of you is that you would encourage us with this passage if we are doubting your providence, if we are doubting the ways and how you are working in our lives. Um, may this scripture come to life, and I pray that um, you would point us to different memorials that we have in our lives that speak powerful testimonies of how you have worked grace and faithfulness and how you've given us so many gifts and how you've blessed us beyond measure. And God, um, that one thing we we wrote down to pray for for the rest of the year, um, I pray, God, that you would really honor it. I pray that you would consider it. And God, I pray that you would show us really just a glimpse of your faithfulness and your desire to answer prayers. We love you, God. We give you all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.